Mark chapter 6 and verse 14. And as we read this, every week I, I try to remind us of the joy and the sobriety of what we're about to do, because we're, we're prone to forget that this is not just any other book. It is a book. It has narratives and poetry. It is, it is a book. It is a, a written work, and yet it is a written work like no other. It is a written work by God himself. God himself wrote this book through the pens of inspired writers, the quills of inspired writers, and we now have the privilege of enjoying it this morning. So we come to it with a sense of anticipation. God is speaking to us this morning. So let's begin reading in John or Mark rather chapter 6 and verse 14. King Herod heard of it for Jesus name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, <coughs> Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him. And gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. I want you to notice something with me this morning. Notice, if you would, look, look back at verse 12. Notice that, verse 12. 12 of chapter 6. We didn't read it just now, but I want you to just do a little exercise for me, if you would, this morning. Read verse 12, and then skip this entire story and go right to verse 30. Let's just try that for a little exercise this morning, okay? So just read this with me. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them, verse 30. 
the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Now, <laughs> in the middle of those verses, which flow quite nicely together, don't they? They went out and they're healing the sick and casting out demons and anointing with oil. And it's generally a wonderful scene. And then they return and Jesus says, you've been working hard. Come and rest for a while. There is this gruesome story about John the Baptist right in the middle, literally in the middle of verses that just flow nicely. If you were writing them, if you were an English teacher, you would tell your children, um, you need to remove this paragraph and put it somewhere else because uh, clearly this was your train of thought and then the train derailed, went off the tracks and down into the ocean. Let's, let's get it back on track. That's what it feels like, doesn't it, as you're, as you're flowing through this passage. When I was, when I was uh, going to, to pastor's college, a ministry training school that I attended, I had a friend who was attending with me who was from Russia. He grew up in Russia. And in Russia, uh, when he was growing up, it was automatic that every male had to go through military training. And so he told the story of when he was a young man and he was you know, told he had to go to military training, so they put him on a bus and he was there in the bus, a young man, and I'm sure somewhat uh, fearful and anticipating of this moment. And he, he, the bus arrives, the door opens, he steps off of the bus, and he's met by a sergeant who immediately punches him right in the face and says, welcome to the Russian army. Now that is an interruption. That is an interruption in your day. That is a punch in the middle of what otherwise might have been an ordinary day. That, that story reminds me of what's going on here. It's like a punch in the gut. In the middle of your moment, you are arriving into this next moment when the apostles arrive home. But instead of that, you get punched with this story about the execution, the gruesome execution of John the Baptist. Now, here is the crucial exegetical question. If you are reading this in your Bibles, at home in your devotions, one of the goals of exegetical preaching is to teach us how to read and understand our Bibles. If you are reading this story, would your first thought be, that's an odd placement for the John the Baptist story, it's just randomly dropped in there. I don't really know why. I guess Mark had to fit it in somewhere, so he did. If that is your reaction, that would be a normal reaction. But we want to notice, because Mark does this all the time, and actually a lot of scriptures do this all the time, they use interruptions on purpose. They are not random. They are interruptions for a reason. God is not a bad writer. When he interrupts himself, he does so to make a point. Listen, that sergeant, when he slugged my friend, wasn't just randomly interrupting his day. He was informing him of the nature of the journey he was on. It wasn't just, what shall I do today? I don't know. Let's randomly punch people. No, no. That punch was making a point. That punch was clarifying not just that moment, but the definition of this entire project. And that's exactly what Mark is doing with this story right here. This is not an interruption that's random or occasional or John thought, oh gosh, we never put, we got to honor John the Baptist, just put it there. No, no, he puts it there to make a point about the surrounding story. The apostles are preaching, they are casting out demons, they are healing the sick. Punch! that defines that mission, and then they return. 
What is Mark doing? More importantly, what is God doing? The mission of these witnesses for Jesus and all those who would follow them is defined by this interruption about John the Baptist. This central interruption defines the nature and the content of their witness and every witness who bears witness to Jesus Christ. Now let's do this. Let's walk through the story and then we'll seek to apply the lesson that this punch is providing uh, to the witness of Jesus Christ. Let's walk through the story first. We, we begin with the news that the reputation of Jesus as his followers now are even doing mighty works and miracles reaches the ears of King Herod. Herod was a, a Roman representative. He was sort of a Jewish ruler, but really he was a puppet of Rome. And he hears of Jesus, and his name is becoming known, and there is speculation about who this guy from Galilee could possibly be. And the best they can come up with is he, he's got to be somebody supernatural and powerful. I mean, he's raising the dead, he's casting out demons, he's healing the sick. Who, who do we know that can do that kind of thing? And naturally, their thoughts go to some of the Old Testament prophets who had performed somewhat similar kinds of miracles. They also think of John the Baptist, who had not done any miracles that we know of, but certainly had a similar kind of teaching authority, calling out people of all stations of life to repent and turn to the Lord and having an overwhelming following among the people of Israel. So they think, well, John the Baptist has, has been raised from the dead, perhaps. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. They would have had some belief that if somebody's come back from the dead, they've probably brought some of that resurrection power back with them. And so now this resurrected John has the ability to do the kinds of things that Jesus is doing. Maybe he's John the Baptist too. Maybe that's what he is. Maybe he's Elijah there was a prophecy in Malachi about Elijah coming back before the day of the Lord. Maybe, maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's a prophet like, like one of the old prophets. There's speculation. They, they know enough to know he's got to be somebody divinely sponsored. This is not man-made, but you want to notice again, Mark does this again and again. He points out that people can be close but far. They're close they get that Jesus is impressive. They get he's not a mere man, but they don't get all that he is. It's a warning, I think, in Mark to people who are close to Jesus, who grow up around Jesus, and yet you need to realize you can be far from understanding how great he actually is. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's Elijah, come back from the dead. They can't figure out who this guy is. Well, Herod has a perspective likely motivated by his guilty conscience. He says, I know who it is. It's got to be John the Baptist. There's a sense of sort of guilty superstition in Herod's response. You sense some of his, his guilt at the action that is then described that had already taken place at this point. It's John the Baptist whom I beheaded. You, you almost get the sense that this is the, the ghost of John the Baptist come back to haunt this particular ruler. He's come back. He's, he's come back now. I, I can't get rid of him. I, I shouldn't have in the first place, and now he's come back to haunt me. You, you get a, a sense of that in this, this passage. He's, he's come back from the dead, John the Baptist, and that allows Mark to proceed into the story of how John the Baptist died. For, Mark says, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, 
his brother Philip's wife because he had married her. We begin the story about John with some background about how John ended up in prison in the first place. John was this preacher, this, this herald of repentance, and he was courageous and fearless of anyone in any kind of powerful position, including Herod himself. Now, what had happened here was that Herod was married, and his brother was married, but then Herod decided he wanted to be married to his brother's wife, and so he had chosen to go about that. This led to all kinds of political problems in the future. His first wife, father, was very upset, ultimately attacked uh, the nation where Herod was, all that kind of stuff you can read in the history books, but this was a, a real thing that happened. And they are living together, and as the representative of God's people, John calls him out, unafraid of calling out the authority of the land and saying, you are supposed to be a successor to the throne of David in some sense, and you are behaving in unrighteousness. You are ungodly. It is not lawful for you to have her. You might call yourself a king. He wasn't even actually a king. He was just a provisional ruler. But he's saying, you might call yourself a king, but the king of Israel is under the law of God. And you must recognize what you're doing and repent. So John, fearless, calls him out, unafraid of his political power. Well, Herodias, who probably was excited about this marriage too, because she was then allowed to be the wife of a ruler, holds a grudge against John, so great a grudge that she wants to put him to death, it says in verse 19. But she could not, notice verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So we have this picture of this, this wicked, unabashedly holy queen, and this timid, fearful, and compromised king. So the king is weak. He has some respect for John. He has some knowledge that there's something about him I can't quite understand, but it's impressive and godly in some way. There's a sort of a, perhaps a superstition. He's also a political maneuverer, and he knows, look, if I just kill John, a riot could start. I could lose my support among the people. I'm not going to do that. So he compromises. He takes John. He puts him in prison. See, dear, he's in jail. But he won't kill him, which she's apparently been nagging him to do. He won't kill him because then he can say to all the people, I haven't killed him. I'm just holding him. It's for his own protection, perhaps. He compromises. He's, he's weak. He's uncertain. He, he doesn't want to compromise his position. He has some sense that John's important and holy, but he doesn't want to go all the way and, and kill him, so he keeps him in jail. And then verse 21 says, an opportunity came. The opportunity here is an opportunity of evil. It's an opportunity for Herodias to get what she wants. Herod had a birthday celebration. Not something particularly approved of by the Jews. It was seen to be a pagan practice at that time. Herod goes ahead and gives a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And then verse 22, Herodias' daughter comes in and dances. If you detect a note of gross immorality here, you would be correct. She pleases Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And probably an attempt to impress his guests with a king-like boast up to half of my kingdom. Now, 
Herod doesn't really even have a kingdom, but he wants to act like a king in front of these guests. I'm King Herod. Up to half of my kingdom I will give to you. On a very king-like boast. She would have understood that doesn't literally mean divide up the kingdom. It's a way of saying, you can ask for something extravagant, and because of my greatness, I can give it to you. Compromising people always get in trouble when their competing cravings come into the same room. Up to half my kingdom, I will give it with you. She goes with haste to her mother and says... What should I ask for? Her mother doesn't hesitate. Ask for the head of John the Baptist. Herodias senses in this moment a unique opportunity. She knows Herod very well. She knows he has made this boast, this kingly boast in front of all of his friends that he wants to impress, all the leading men, all the military commanders. He's wanting to act like a king. And now there's this moment where if she asks for what she wants, he will have to look bad in front of all of those people if he admits, well, he seems like a a kind of a holy man. The Herodian court was known for its immorality. It was known for its its decadence. So for Herod at this point to bring up his his religious superstitions would make him seem weak, let alone going back on his promise, his vow before all these people to this young girl. So she comes in, and she asks. Mark intentionally provides the details here. You want to remember, Mark is not a long-winded writer. So when he provides details, it is to make a point. He adds this gruesome detail that apparently the girl adds about this platter. Bring me his head on a platter. Joseph Alexander is quoted in, Commentary by D. Edmund Hybert. He says this, Alexander comments that this gruesome request for service on a platter was probably added by the daughter of her own accord as a hideous jest, implying an intention to devour it. It's a meal of wickedness made of a prophet's head. Now suddenly, Herod can no longer compromise. He must choose between his mild respect for John and his concern about the religious people in Jerusalem and seeming weak at his own birthday celebration in front of his high-ranking friends. And he will not embarrass himself. The one thing Herod is sure of is the one thing that is most important to him, the one thing that is absolutely inviolable is his own position. Whatever else he chooses to do, whatever he does, it is finally going to bow to the ultimate person on the throne of his heart, and that will be himself. He doesn't want to give up John, but he will if he's left with no choice. If it's John or Herod, Herod will choose himself. So he does. Immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now Mark sets up this contrast very intentionally. You have Herod and his friends feasting, laughing, clapping for this girl 
display of immorality and then looking for more wine, another course of food. And she says the food she would like is the head of this godly man on a platter. It's a big evil joke. Serve up the martyred prophet on a dish. It's grotesquely evil. Mark does that on purpose. And you get the contrast of John sitting alone. Alone waiting, perhaps praying in his jail cell, wondering what his future ministry will be. Suddenly, the steps come pounding. The door creaks open. They order him on his knees. The contrast is intentional. You have the banquet of wickedness, and you have this godly witness waiting for his death. His body is taken and buried reverently by his disciples. There's a a contrast here. It is intentional. It is defining. Now, that is the punch. It's painful. It's hard. It is difficult. What is it trying to say about this mission? The apostles go out, punch, and then they come back. What is it saying about the nature of that mission? How is it defining that mission? How is it shaping their expectations of that mission? Well, I think it does it in two primary ways. Two primary ways. First of all, it does that by pointing to who they are representing, who they are representing. Now, this passage points to Jesus as who the disciples are representing a couple of ways. It points to his death quite literally. It's almost like a a foreshadowing of his death because of the similarities between what happens to John and this quasi-moment of trial and what happens to Jesus. It is important to understand that there is a a commonality here. There, there is a sense in which, in the same way that, that John's case is put before Herod and he, he vacillates and is ultimately giving in to the request of the people, so Pilate eventually will vacillate and give in to the request of the people for Jesus to be executed. In the sense where Jesus' innocence is understood and maintained even by the one condemning him to death, so Pilate will know of Jesus' innocence and will state it and yet ultimately will condemn him him to death. And there's a sense of the grotesque clamoring for the head of John the Baptist and the grotesque clamoring for the crucifixion of Jesus. So Mark writes this in such a way that it is a a kind of premonition, a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. But it's not just a, a telling of his death. It is also pointing ultimately to his identity. It points to his identity. And we want to understand something here. In the Old Testament, it is very important to to know that one of the last sentences in the Old Testament declares that the prophet Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord. That's probably why the people were even asking about Elijah. Could this be Elijah? Because Malachi said, said, the Lord will send the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There was going to be a, a forerunner, an Elijah part two, that was going to come and speak to the people and prepare them for the coming of the Lord. Well, this passage is incredibly, remarkably similar to the ordeal Elijah went through. Now, I need you to stick with me a minute. This is a little bit of biblical work here, but it makes a really important point. What happened to John 
is incredible in how parallel it is to what happened to Elijah. Elijah had a conflict, notice this, with a weak and compromising king and his diabolical queen. You may have heard her name. Her name was Jezebel. She's known, she's actually referenced in the Bible as maybe the epitome of evil women, even all the way to Revelation. So Ahab and Jezebel have this conflict with Elijah, the Elijah that's supposed to have a part two later on in redemption history. A king and his wicked queen want Elijah stopped. The king has this mild sense of respect for Elijah and yet is frustrated by him. The queen is all out determined to put him to death. There is this incredible parallelism between what happens with, with, with John here and Elijah. It, it is as though Mark is wanting his readers, and more importantly, God was inviting the people of Israel to see. H- has this story struck you as familiar in any way? Has this story seemed similar to you of anyone else you've ever heard of? Has there ever been someone where there was a vacillating king who was compromising and yet someone interested and yet ultimately weak and this wicked evil king who led Israel into sin and and that their marriage itself was was evil and, and deserving of being condemned? Does that remind you of any particular prophet? And anybody that had any knowledge of the Old Testament would say, well, that sounds, I mean, just like Elijah. I mean, remarkably so. Almost as if God would have to do that. Yes. What this story is doing, if if we know our Old Testament history, is it's saying without saying, here is your Elijah to come. And guess what that means? Guess what is at hand? The day of the Lord. It's saying it without saying it. Like we've said over and over again in Mark, it is right in front of you, but you have to see it. It's right there. Here is Elijah, part two. It's right there, but you have to see it. And if you believe that John is the the recoming of an Elijah-like prophet to Israel, then you have to believe that what comes after him is the day of the Lord. So who is Jesus? The one who follows the Elijah-like person. Actually, Jesus makes this point explicit so that we don't miss it. In just a few chapters, he says, he says this. He says, they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. What Jesus is teaching us to do here is to read our Bibles as one big story. Even the events of history themselves, God wrote to anticipate the future and culminating events. So in other words, God wrote the story of Elijah to anticipate the story of John the Baptist so that his people would have a clue as to who was coming after the identity of Jesus Christ. There's a a scene in, in The Lord of the Rings where the company goes to this this great underground city and there's a door, and on top of the door, there's a a riddle. It says, speak friend and enter. Perhaps you've seen the movie or read the book. 
And they can figure out what it means. They assume it's a riddle, so they're trying to come up with all these passwords. And what's the password? We just say the right word. And, and finally, someone realizes, no, it, it is a riddle. You just actually speak the right word, friend. And the door opens. And then they do, friend. And open, open the door. There it comes. That's like this story. It's right in front of them. Who is Jesus is the first question of this passage and the most important defining content of the apostles' mission. Who are they representing? Subtly but plainly, the passage says they're representing the one who comes after Elijah. Who is that one? The coming of the day of the Lord. They are representing the Messiah. God's own son come in the flesh, heralded and proclaimed and anticipated by his second Elijah, just as he foretold. This one that incredibly marches even to his death to fulfill his prophetic, prophetic refiguring. Listen, John the Baptist served in this role to the very final moment when the sword fell. He anticipated revealed who Jesus was. Literally, John the Baptist's death at the hands of a wicked queen and a vacillating king revealed Jesus Christ to be who he said he was. He literally revealed the identity of Jesus by dying at the hands of this couple. It's subtle, but it's right there. It's right there. It is right there for the eyes of faith to see anyone with any knowledge of the Old Testament. It is right there. Here is the Elijah to come, even to the details of his death. Here he is to his very final moments. He is the new Elijah, and he is proclaiming the coming of the day of the Lord. How does the punch define the mission? They are representing none other than God the Son come in the flesh. Now, that's important. Because witnessing is hard. It's not always like it was for these apostles where we only experience fruit. And so they need to remember who they are representing because it will motivate them and everyone who follows after them. You are representing God the Son where all of redemption history was marching forward to his arrival. Your sharing of the gospel is no less than the culmination of all of God's purposes for history. Great men of the past, like Elijah and John the Baptist, were written into this story intentionally to reveal to you who it is that you are telling your son or daughter about next Thursday night. It defines the story by saying who they are representing. It also defines the story by saying what they should expect as his witnesses. This persecution of John is in keeping with the same persecution that Jesus will experience, and therefore it is in keeping with the same kind of persecution that his people will experience. What, what does this interruption reveal about the nature of this mission that is literally occurring in this story? It's saying it's about Jesus, the one who came after Elijah, and it is going to face deadly opposition. That's the nature of this mission. It is about Jesus... And it's going to face deadly opposition. That's what you need to know. That's what this punch indicates to you. It's not just an interruption. It's not random. It's telling you the nature of this journey you are now on. It's defining it. 
It's explaining it to you. It's giving you realistic expectations. This is not going to be a walk in the park. You are not coming to summer camp. Welcome to the Russian army. Welcome to the mission of Jesus. It's a mission where grotesque, evil, compromising people will oppress you and potentially kill you because you belong to him. That is the mission. What do we need to be ready for if we're defined by this mission? What do the apostles need to be ready for? And quite literally, these apostles literally experienced the reality of this expectation in their own lives. Many, if not most of them, were actually martyred. So this expectation would build into them. When Mark writes the story, look, this is your expectation. Mark is writing most likely to Christians in Rome who are or will be facing incredible, even grotesque, persecution at the hand of Nero. When they read this story, they can say, this will always be the nature of the mission. Grotesque evil and evil delights and desires will look to destroy you. There will always be a court of this world filled with immorality looking to find ways to oppress the holy and righteous witnesses of the Lord. That is the nature of this mission. What do we need to be ready for? Well, well, John informs us. We need to be ready to confront wickedness. We should have that expectation. If we're only willing to call sin, sin in private and not in moments that will get us canceled or killed, we are not living up to the faithful expectation of this mission. John the Baptist is willing to say, this is sin and it cost him his life this is sin the christian witness falls short if it only speaks of salvation and not what people need to be saved from it falls short if it only speaks of jesus as the one who desires to bless your life and not the one who needs to save you from the current direction of your life John the Baptist defines the mission by helping readers understand, look, you're going to have to do this too. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to make hardened consciences uneasy. Be prepared to confront wickedness. That's part of the expectation. Be ready for superficial respect and outright hatred. Be ready for that. I think the church sometimes is seduced by superficial respect. I think that can happen in our country all over the place. We have a kind of superficial respect, certain people that have a, a superficial kind of respect for all religions. And so we can assume that's the way it should always be. That's the way God intends it to be. God has, has brought history to the point where all religions will be respected and therefore Christians will be respected. Listen, listen. Jesus did not guarantee permanent respect from those who might temporarily respect you right now. Don't be deceived by that. There might be these, these fluctuating people in our times as well. There's a, kind of a superstitious, well, good for you, Christians, following what you believe in. That's wonderful. Don't, don't be deceived by modern-day Herods who have a kind of superficial respect for Christianity. But when it really comes down to it, will always choose themselves over the authority of Jesus. And don't be surprised by outright hatred. Outright hatred at those who their lifestyle is condemned by this Bible. 
Listen, they are, what are they going to do? They're going to be like Herodias. They are going to hate you. And it doesn't matter how nice or loving you say that their lifestyle is sinful and deserving of God's wrath. You can say that with a smile on your face and cookies in your hand and a big hug. But if you say that, there's going to be some people that say, I hate you for saying that. And not just I hate you, but you're hateful and dangerous. And just the fact that you say that means you are an unloving and terrible person. Listen, what's happening right now has all happened before. To John the Baptist, the first witness to Jesus. And the Lord put it in his word so that people would be prepared. Welcome to the Christian mission. (laughs) Be ready for superficial respect and outright hatred. Don't be surprised if the person at work who's been nice to you for years, when they find out what you believe, now hate you. I was talking to a friend recently who literally had that happen. (laughs) Friendly for years, found out what you believe your convictions are, and now you're terrible. You might lose friends, you might lose relatives. Wait, you you believe what? You won't participate in what? You won't say what? You won't affirm what? I, I had no idea you're terrible. Listen, we have members in our church who are literally facing this kind of test right now. They literally could, in a very short, it's just right, the next step, could literally be facing the loss of their jobs if they will not say what a wicked world wants them to say. Here's the word of God. Yes, that is the mission. Not always, thank the Lord, does that happen in every generation to every person. But yes, that is the mission. It might happen to you next week. Some corporate mandate might come down next week that violates some truth of God's word and you have to say, here's what I believe and why I can't do that or why I will do this. And they will transition from friendly corporate work parties to suddenly you are persona non grata and we don't want you around here. Look, the Bible is written to give us realistic expectations so that we can have faith and not compromise when that happens. That might happen to you. Are you prepared for that to happen to you? To lose your current job right now? The one you have right now, the one you've had for 15 years, right now there could come a moment where what it means to believe in Jesus is losing the respect of this world. This interruption is meant to define something. Welcome to the Christian mission, Mark says, with great experience and a veteran's smile. Finally, be ready for the loss of freedom and the loss of life. Just give me one more minute to touch on this, and then I'll close. I've heard some teaching recently that has has disturbed me. Maybe you've seen it because of the cultural things going on. And I've I've heard people using phrases like "Jesus Christ Christ died to give us freedom." Now. There is obviously a sense in which that is absolutely true. It's true ultimately 
when he comes and brings us into the new heaven and the new earth, we will be freed from every disease, every death, every trial of suffering. It's true spiritually that we are free from the wrath of God, but sometimes the way it's used, it almost sounds like Jesus' death guaranteed political and social freedom in this life. That is not true. Jesus did not die to guarantee political and social freedom in this life. Now, do I love political and social freedom? Do I think it's better? Yes, absolutely. And do I hope we always have that in our country? Yes, absolutely. Do I hope we maintain that? Yes, absolutely. But there's a big difference in thinking something is good and wonderful when it happens and seeing it as a guarantee of Jesus' death. Everything Jesus guarantees in his death is always true and is never not true. Jesus guarantees your freedom from the wrath of God, and no one can take that from you. It never is put back on you. Jesus guarantees Christians a future home in heaven, and nothing can take that from you. You are never without that guarantee. So when we say Jesus died to give us freedom, let's talk about those things that he definitely accomplished and cannot be taken from us. And no, Jesus did not die to give every Christian a guarantee of political or social freedom in this world. So, let's be prepared. We may, I hope we do, and let us stand up for those things in appropriate ways under the rule of law in this country that God has allowed us to do. And yet we need to be careful because the gospel does not guarantee. It's not as though Christians who have been imprisoned for their faith over the centuries are just not bold enough. They're not claiming Christ's promises enough. Or maybe they should move. No. This is the mission. Was John lacking in faith? Is that why he was in prison? Did he not appreciate enough of God's promises? Did he not understand the rights that he had as a follower of God? No. This is the mission. Praise God for seasons of delightful reprieve that we have enjoyed in this country and in post-enlightenment countries for many hundreds of years. Now, praise God. But that is the exception, not the rule, and that is not the expectation. So let's be careful when we say things like Christ died to give us freedom. What kind of freedom are we talking about? The freedoms Christ purchased are automatic and cannot be taken away. They are the freedoms that the prisoner has when he is persecuted for his faith, that the martyr has when his head falls off the chopping block, that the person who has to give up his job still has even when that job is taken away. Those freedoms are unstealable. What this tells us is that we do need to have the expectation that there may be a loss of freedom and a loss of life in this mission. The apostles literally experienced the fulfillment of this expectation in their own lives, and we should as well. Now, I hope no one faces what John faced. But at the very least, this expectation makes any other kind of loss seem like something surely we can face. Smaller house because I lost my job, surely we can face. Living with an old dumpy car in somebody's garage because I can't find work based on my convictions, surely we can face for the name of Jesus. 
this passage prepares us. Welcome, says Mark. Bloodied, probably, and bruised Mark. Welcome to the Christian mission. Imagine those Roman Christians who'd maybe seen friends die. Hearing this, they are not alone. Much better to be the godly Christian buried reverently in hopes and confidence in a future resurrection like John was than to be a party to this grotesque party feasting on their lives. I think it's good for us to read passages like this because it prepares us for whatever tests we face, that we can embrace them with joy in Jesus' name. Let me close with this. Charles Spurgeon says, Remember, remember, that our Bible is a blood-stained book. The blood of martyrs is on the Bible, the blood of translators and confessors. What do you expect easy lives while some have sailed through seas of blood and have fought to win the prize? Are you wearied with a slight skirmish on dry land? Let the blood of martyrs, let the voices of confessors speak to you. Remember how they held fast the truth, how they preserved it and handed it down to us from generation to generation. And by their noble example, I beseech you, be steadfast and faithful Tread valiantly and firmly in their steps and acquit yourselves like men, like men of God, I implore you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded this morning that you are a, a kind father. Lord, you don't give empty promises optimistic projections like I so often do. Lord, you give us the truth and you give us grace to receive it. Lord, I pray for every cultural test that every Christian will face this week, from small tests of the fear of man in conversations or on social media to opportunities to represent you and your holiness accurately. Lord, to big tests like the loss of jobs, the loss of friends, the loss of prestige. Lord, cause us to take those tests willingly and to gladly stand with John and our brothers and sisters through the ages in testifying to you, our crucified and risen Lord. We are your witnesses. Cause us to be faithful to this mission. In Jesus' name.